Good morning. How are we doing? Peachy. Well, you ready for this? We're back in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 12. And this is a big transitional part of the book. So I want to take a step back and just remind ourselves of where we've been so far. Okay, so Romans 1 through 8 is about what? It's about, oh, I don't know, I don't know, everybody's, what we got? We're horrible people. We're horrible people, and so we need to be saved from the wrath of God. So Romans 1.17, that is the outline, that's the picture, right? It says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so then all of Romans 1 to 8 is him opening up what that means. We are all horrible people. We are rebels. We are hypocrites. We're self-righteous liars and jerks. We're all of those things. And we justly deserve the wrath of God. We are without God and without hope in the world. But, but God himself, who is full of grace and mercy, stooped down to us in our sin. And he made a way for us to be saved. So first, we have to understand that Jesus came, he lived a perfect sinless life, and he bore the wrath of God on our our behalf. So he takes our sin, we get his righteousness. We receive that by faith, and that is called justification, justification, okay? Freedom from the guilt of sin. But he doesn't just free us from the guilt of sin, he also frees us from the power of sin, so that we can walk in newness of life. And that's called sanctification. And he doesn't just free us from the power of sin in this life, it gets better. Because in the end, what happens? Jesus wins and we are free and the world is free from the presence of sin. And that's glorification. And that ends up with this sweet reality that from first to last, God, through the blood of his son, frees us from sin from its guilt, from its power, and from its presence. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Nothing. And that frees us to then work on ourselves in this life, right? It frees us to make sacrifices. Why? Because what's the most anybody can do to us? Kill us? And then what happens? We go to be with Jesus, and then we are free from the presence of sin and the power of sin. So it doesn't matter. We are free. Okay, so that's Romans 1 to 8, okay, all summarized in this statement. Hear it, right? We've been working on it for a year. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, it's all by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, and so then there's this like little pause here. So that's Romans 1 to 8, and then there's this little pause where it's like, wait, 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 wait. You said something about for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Can we stop and talk about that for a minute? Because it doesn't, I'm not quite sure how that works. And Paul says, okay, we'll stop and talk about that for a minute, but buckle up and be ready to just kind of put your hand over your mouth. Because here's what it comes to. God is sovereign over salvation from first to last. God's working his plan. And some of it's a mystery. 
God came to Abraham. We talked about Abraham in chapters four and five. God made promises to Abraham's children. God's gonna fulfill all of those promises. But those promises are for salvation to the whole world, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so what does that mean? What is that gonna look like? Well, we don't all have all the pieces. We don't have the big picture. None of us do. It's a mystery. But it is all working towards God's promised end, and God's promises are true, and God is faithful, and we need to trust that no matter what we see or how it feels, and we need to be humble. So true or false, the promised Messiah came. True. He did. True or false, he is the king, the son of David, the descendant of Abraham, the heir of the throne. True. True or false, his kingdom has spread and is spreading throughout the world. True. True or false, God still has a plan for the physical descendants of Abraham that culminates in their mass repentance and conversion. True. True. That's what I believe Romans 9 to 11 teaches. You might disagree with me. That's okay. We can talk about it. Okay, but there is only one true God. His name is Jesus. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus. It's the way it's always been. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quote from Joel that is repeated in the New Testament in the book of Acts. The word Lord there is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, period. If you do not worship Jesus, you do not worship Yahweh, period. One God. It's all a mystery. It's all God's work. It's all working to his glorious end. And so we end with this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him that he might repay? Nobody. We shut up, we worship him. Why? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, Romans 1 to 11. And now what could we have left, possibly? We have five more chapters. What's left to talk about? Here's my answer. The whole point, the whole purpose of the book of Romans. That's what's next. That's what's next. I would go farther. The whole point of the gospel, the whole purpose, the whole point, that's what's next. That's what's ahead of us. Many uh, people don't understand this. Many people want to say that the point of the gospel is the gospel. The point of the gospel is grace and forgiveness. And that would be wrong. There are a whole lot of churches who would be happy for Romans to have ended with chapter 8. And that's wrong. There are a whole lot of churches that would be happy for Ephesians, I know you ladies have been studying it, to end after chapter two or three, and that would be wrong. Listen to what God says about the purpose of the good news, okay? And I'm going to read it from Ephesians two this time. Is this a nice summary of everything we've learned in Romans, okay? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Sound familiar so far? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sound familiar? It's Romans 1, 2, and 3, right? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Sounds great, right? Sounds like Romans 1 to 8. What comes next? The word for, which is an indicator of purpose. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The point of the gospel is that God has prepared us for work to do, good work that we should walk in. And our salvation is not just salvation from the guilt of sin and someday the presence of sin, but the power of sin in this life because God has work for us now. Now. So the whole second half of Ephesians is what? It's a picture of what that looks like. And what's coming next in Romans is what? It's a picture of what that looks like. Romans 12 to 16, that's what it's about. It's more of the same because as we will see, the purpose of the gospel is not simply to forgive sinners, but to create worshipers of the one true God who worship him in spirit and truth with their whole lives, with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the point. Okay, you ready? Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, right? There it is, therefore. And that therefore is Romans 1 to 11. What's it there for? It's there to show us what 1 to 11 is all about. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Again, that's all we've been talking about, okay, up to now, the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's it. That's the goal of the gospel. That's the goal of the good news, that we would be able to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. The goal of the good news is to create worshipers of the living God, to restore us to what we were made to be from the outset, from the beginning. Worshippers who worship God not just in our singing, but with our whole lives, every aspect, every part, our bodies. We are to be living sacrifices, dying to ourselves in our sin and living to God. Okay, so what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, it looks like rebellion. It looks like resistance utter and complete opposition to the world. The world is in rebellion against God, and we are in rebellion against the world. We are freeing ourselves, liberating ourselves, or rather being liberated by God to be free. And the first step is to have our consciences cleansed, freed from the guilt of sin. And that's what the gospel does, and that's why that's where we start. It restores us to our right relationship with God. It gives us new hearts and new desires so that before we were motivated by our own desires, our own sinful and selfish desires. And that looks like a lot of things. What did it look like for you? What does it look like for you? It can look like being a people pleaser. It can look like performing for people, being out to, pr to prove that you're special. It can look like the pursuit of success. It can look like seeking love and admiration, seeking to prove that you're worthy of those things. 
like the pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of pleasure, of comfort, of ease, combinations of all of those things usually, right? But now we find that we are already loved and accepted and forgiven by the God who made the universe and we're his children, his adopted sons, and we don't have to please ourselves anymore because God is pleased with us. Not because of anything in us that we need to produce, but because of Jesus and what he's done for us. We don't have to perform for anybody anymore. We don't have to please anybody anymore. We don't have anybody to impress. We don't need anything. We have the God who made everything. All things are ours in him. And that's step one to freedom. It's the red pill that gets you out of the matrix, that helps you step outside. If I have God, I ultimately don't need anyone or anything else. Not when it comes down to it, not really. I can find healing for all kinds of things, for the rejection of my parents or the pain I feel because my life didn't turn out the way I hope or the regrets I have over sin in my past. Sins I've committed or sins that were committed against me. That begins with the mercies of God. It's founded on the reality that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's where we find freedom and power and courage to stand against the world and its designs to rule and control our lives and destroy us with our own sin. So Romans 1 to 8 or really 1 to 11 is about our relationship with God because that's where we have to start. Once we're reconciled to God, that relationship becomes the basis for all of our other relationships. It changes everything. It changes how we look at everything. It changes how we think about everything. It shapes and informs how we think. Romans 12 to 16, then, is about our relationships with other people. How we begin to translate God's love for us into love for others. How we begin to imitate his love for us. How we begin to love as he has loved us. How he fills us up so that we have something to share and give to others instead of needing to take. God is patient with us so we can be patient with one another. God forgives us so we can forgive one another. God loves us. God loved us even while we were his enemies. So we can love one another. We can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus changes our lives and that changes everything. So we're out. We stepped out. Out of the matrix, out of the system. We are now part of the family of God. We have everything we need in Christ. We're free. And we give freely to others what has been freely given to us. Easy, right? Simple. Piece of cake. It's hard. It's hard. Why? We've grown up in the world. We've lived our lives according to the value system of the world. The world has trained us, trained our hearts and our minds and habits and patterns to be selfish and greedy and defensive and grasping. We had the sin already there. And then we got trained in it. To take and take and take and take and take and grasp and grasp and grasp. And in the kingdom of God, it's not that. It's give. Because we have an infinite supply of love and grace and mercy and acceptance in Christ. So it starts with God first in our relationship with God. You fix that, fix everything downstream. Then we figure out how to live. One day somebody asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was. What was the answer? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And that's just all we see throughout the Old Testament, or the New Testament. Romans' structure is basically love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We just hit the corner, right? Now we're in the love your neighbor part. Ephesians, same story. Colossians, same story. It's just that. It's what it all comes down to. Jesus said the whole Old Testament comes down to all the law, all the prophets come down to two things. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. That's it. That's it. Start with a relationship with God. Restored, repaired through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Learn to love God because he first loved you. And then you'll be free to truly love others, to love your neighbor as yourself, to imitate God's love for you. And part of how that works is that our relationship with God over time becomes so strong and so rich that it kills in us the need for reciprocity, the need to take, the need to get ours. And if you feel yourself needing and grasping, okay, you've got a horizontal problem relationally, but you also have a vertical problem with your relationship with God. Because you need to not be working from an empty cup that you're trying to fill from other people. You need to start with a full cup that overflows with the love of God for you. Okay, this means that many of our relational issues are actually issues with our relationship with God. Issues with our understanding of our relationship with God. It means that working through our relationships with one another often starts with working through our relationship with God. And that means if we have trouble in a relationship, part of what we need to ask is, man, am I, am I walking with God? Am I right with God? Am I understanding God's love for me rightly? Or am I trying to get something over here that I should be looking to God for? What do I mean? Well, often in our relationships, it looks like this. Let's start with just an issue that we have in our relationships like trust, okay? Trust. Okay, so you've got your husband or your wife or somebody close to you, a parent, a sibling, but there's a trust issue. I don't trust you. I need you to prove yourself to me. I need you to take the first step towards me. I have been hurt. I have been wounded. I have suspicions. You are responsible for my lack of trust. I need you to overcome the barriers in our relationship between us. Okay, that's what comes out. That's what presents. Y'all been there? Bring true for anybody? You felt that? Okay. That's what comes out. That's what presents. And we think it's as simple as I've been hurt, and so I need you to be understanding. Okay? Sounds reasonable, but often it's not that simple. Because beneath that is a belief that you will hurt me, you will betray me, you will let me down. And beneath that, there's another layer. And that layer is, I'm not actually worthy of being loved and accepted. And so that's why you're going to betray me and that's why I can't trust you. And that's the story you believe deep down and you want that other person to just constantly either confirm or deny it. 
And that can sound, even there, it can sound innocent enough, right? We've all been hurt. We all have wounds. We all have scars. Loving each other means being understanding of those scars, and it's not unreasonable to expect other people to be understanding of our scars. But beneath that, there's another layer, and that other layer can be much more nefarious. Because beneath that layer can be an accusation that is actually directed against God himself. God, I cannot believe the good news of your love to me and Jesus. I cannot trust it. I cannot depend upon it. I cannot accept it. I won't believe it. I won't embrace it. I won't be healed by it. I refuse to get it from you. I'm going to get it from other people. In fact, I demand that you love me on my terms. Forget the reconciliation, the restoration, a relationship with you. Forget grace and forgiveness. It all sounds nice, but it means nothing to me now. What I want is for you to love me on my terms. And my terms are that I want the people in my life to make me feel the way I want to feel, period. And if that's not happening, then forget you, and I will pursue my sin and my comforts and my pleasure in any other way that I please. You will love me on my terms or I will reject you. But the one thing I won't do is simply accept your love for me in Christ. I refuse to trust you. I refuse to make myself vulnerable to you or to other people, which means I refuse to grow. I refuse to change. And that is sin that needs to be repented of. It's hard. It's not easy. Anyone who's ever adopted kids will tell you it is hard to build the trust of kids who have been hurt that badly. God is patient with us, and at a certain point, what's true of those kids? At a certain point, those kids need to understand that they are responsible for their response to the love of their adopted parents. They can't blame other people forever. They can't live their whole lives as a victim, and we can't either. You can't either. They are responsible for themselves. We are responsible for ourselves. We are responsible for whether or not we accept and embrace and receive the love of God and allow it to free us to love other people. And that's pretty vulnerable. It requires death to ourselves and to this world. So we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. It's our spiritual worship. And what does that mean? It means that we give up. We go to the altar. We lay down. And we die. To our old selves, to our old lives, to our old ways of thinking and living and acting. And that is what the gospel requires of us. That is what it drives towards. That is the point. And if you've not begun to do that, it's because you've not begun to believe it. And if you don't believe it, what does it say? It doesn't say something good. And I'm concerned that some of you want to accept all of the truths of the gospel in an intellectual way with your head without allowing the truths of the gospel to transform your heart. Yes, I believe in Jesus crucified for sin. Yes, I want to be justified and forgiven and all of that. That's great. I just don't want to accept what it means for my life. 
which is that I'm no longer my own. I have been bought with a price. I belong to Jesus, and he gets to decide what's next. He decides how I live. He demands that I grow, and that changes everything. I'd much rather hold on to my old habits and patterns. I'd like to remain shackled to my sins, slaves, as Bart prayed about before in the confession. Slaves to doubt, slaves to fear, because it's comfortable. Prison meals may stink, but they're three a day. Freedom is scary. Joy, happiness, freedom, peace, scary, risky. I've built my whole life around taking comfort in my pain. I've built my whole life around finding release and complaining and whining. I've built my whole life around finding catharsis in the drama and the sadness and the self-pity. I've built my life around comforting myself with TV and alcohol and games and sex and porn. Don't take my crutches and props away. That's scary. They may be cold comforts, but they're still my comforts. They're hard to part with. And the Bible says, stop. The Bible actually says is nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing. Not height nor depth, nothing in all creation. The mercies of God are ironclad. They're written in stone, written in the blood of the eternal Son of God. And that should free you to come die. And we think of the dying as like, oh yeah, well, if persecution comes, it's, I can handle that. And dying that way is easier than being a living sacrifice. So here's the call. Come by the mercies of God, the God who bought you, the God who saved you, the God who forgave you, who took you from a slave of sin to a child of God. Come and present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so this is the first thing. We present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And most fundamentally, the change is what? We go from living to ourselves to living to God, which looks like loving others. It goes from what do I want to what does Jesus want? It goes from what would make me happy to what would please God? Of course, the beauty is the greater we give ourselves to pleasing God, the greater our joy, actually. We find more joy in pleasing and obeying God than we ever did while we were trying to fill the black hole of our own pleasures. And that's our spiritual worship. We all worship. We were made for worship. The question is never, are you a worshiper or not? It's only who or what are you worshiping? Adam and Eve decided to worship the snake, the created things, rather than God. That's just Romans 1. When Adam and Eve did that, they overthrew the whole creation. They created the mess that we're in. So we're all born in sin. We worship created things. And now as Christians, it's all changed. We worship the living God. And that means we're different. And our lives have to look different. Why? Because worship isn't something that ever really stops. We maybe think of worship like we uh, think of this service or the singing, and those are acts of devotion. They are acts of worship. 
And that is a distinct thing, and it's good to make that distinction. But there's a biblical view of worship that is bigger and more comprehensive than all of that, which is that all of life is worship. We are always worshiping. We are never not worshiping. So we're constantly having to readjust then who we're worshiping. Because our whole lives are to be offerings to God. So who do you worship? What do you worship? Of course, there are simple tests, right? Simple questions we can ask ourselves. Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our money? Where is our actual community? Who are our actual people? What gets us excited? What do we talk about? What do we share? What do we praise? What do we try to convert other people to? What controls or guides or governs the way we think and interact with the world and respond to the people and circumstances of our lives? Big, broad questions, right? It's very easy for us to worship created things, to be idolaters, because the world's full of good things that God made for good, that we easily turn to our own destruction. So what are some examples of those things? Food. Food. Good things easily become the centerpiece of our lives, the thing that we take comfort in. I've had a hard day. Instead of being filled with the Spirit, I'm going to be filled with ice cream. All kinds of things like that. Alcohol. Alcohol is a good thing. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding. Proverbs says, wine was made to gladden the heart of men. A good thing. Easily turned into a bad savior. savior. Easily turned into a bad savior. Come home from a hard day at work, pour myself a hard drink. I deserve the comfort and release of being filled with wine, alcohol, rather than the comfort and peace that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, there are just so many ways to find escapes and ways to numb ourselves. It's easier to pour a bottle than to face our problems. Our hobbies work the same way. Video games, board games, sports, all good things. Participatory, fun, things that can be engaging for the whole family. We're in college football season. College football's fun. Yeah? Moving into basketball season. Basketball's fun. College sports can be fun. They can also look an awful lot like worship. Anybody need help connecting those dots? It's not hard. Just think about gathering together once a week, the colors, the banners, the singing, the cheering, the catharsis of it all, the participation, the sense that, well, everybody here is all family. We're all on the same team. The anticipation that goes into it throughout the week, the analysis that comes out of it, We're worshipers. And we take things that are enjoyable, we turn them into objects of worship. And you can do the same thing for your kids' sports. You can do the same thing for video games or board games or game nights or Legos. It just doesn't matter what it is. Good things made for enjoyment can be turned into objects of worship. Any comfort can become a crutch. And you can put the same pressure on your relationships. Your marriage, your kids, your husband, your wife. They can be your God. 
and they make bad gods. It'll drive you nuts. It'll make you crazy. You'll find yourself in bizarre codependent relationships that cause endless pain. But you can do it. The lists are endless. Okay, Jake, well, that just makes the whole world sound dangerous. You tell me I need to become Amish. No, no. Uh, I tried that. I became a Christian uh, going into my senior year of high school. I didn't know up from down, left from right. I just tried to cut out everything that felt idolatrous to me, and it was kind of bad. There were two things that I knew for sure were idols in my life. The first was baseball. The second was girls. First was easy to cut. I just quit the baseball team. Second, not so hard to cut. I thought I was going to cut my relationships with girls, and what that meant was uh, instead of pursuing romantic or sexual relationships, I was just going to be friends with girls. That worked out really well. I'd have these bizarre things that would happen I couldn't explain where somebody caught feelings and got angry and confused. It's weird. I was, I was on Facebook the other day. So embarrassing. <laughs> I was on Facebook, and it showed me this picture. Uh, you know, your Facebook memories, they're always so happy and great. This is this picture that pops up. And me at Snake and Shake with some friends. My senior year of high school. With this girl that drove all the way from Colorado to meet me which I just thought was normal. I don't even remember how I got introduced to her. It's like, y'all the kids don't know what AIM is, but um, somehow, like, some friend introduced me to this girl on Instant Messenger, and we're, like, chatting and talking. I'll be your Christian friend, brother, whatever. And she drives all the way from Colorado to meet me, and it's just what Christian internet friends do. Look at this picture, like, what an idiot. Like, what was I, like, I had no idea what. Oh, man. I was still trying to give up girls when I became friends with Amanda, and surprise, I kind of thought she was cool and awesome, and then surprise, that led to feelings, and then surprise, we have seven kids now. Still have no idea how it happened. It's a mystery. There are many things that are mysteries. It's not the good things in your life that have to go, right? It's how you think about them. It's how you feel about them. It's whether or not you worship them. And you don't solve those problems by trying to negate them. You solve them by replacing them. It's like the star maps before the time of Copernicus, right? Have you seen these things? The flat earthers try to explain how the stars move across the sky. It's amazing. Crazy complicated. Crazy complicated. Because they start with this general premise that everything moves around the earth. And so you've got these maps, and the, you know, they chart it, but the, the math is crazy. And then Copernicus comes along and is like, got an idea. What if it didn't revolve around us, but it revolved around the sun? Then all the math suddenly gets really simple because everything just moves in an ellipse. Everything like clicks into place and makes sense. And that's like our lives. Our lives revolved around us. That made everything really complicated and stupid. Challenging, weird, hard. You change from everything revolving around you to revolving around the sun. Everything clicks into place and becomes really kind of simple, really kind of obvious. Things click into place. The math gets easy. 
But we have to actually let that reality transform our hearts and our minds and our thinking. Do not be conformed to this world. This world is fallen. It's sinful. It's not our ordering principle. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. We got to test. We got to discern. Not everything we see, think, feel, observe. Not everything we're taught or told. Certainly not everything on the internet is true or good. We have to have our minds renewed and changed by God and his work. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, two ways to live. You will be conformed to this world or you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Two options, two paths, two choices. That's it. The world we live in is desperate to get you to conform to it. It's desperate to get your children to conform to it. You see that, right? Where and how? It's everywhere. Everywhere you turn. How can you not see it? It's media and entertainment and news and government and education. It's all bent to get you to conform to the world, to apply pressure. It's after your mind and your heart and the minds and hearts of your kids. There's no way to deny that. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Everywhere you turn, they're trying to push the ball down the field in their rebellion against God, and it's exhausting to try to keep out in front of it. There's pressure coming at us from all sides, and it's pressure that's intensifying, which is why it's important that we remember we're called to be living sacrifices. Our faith is going to cost us something, because the world is going to make us conform or pay. Last week, I was talking about the beauty of the progress of the gospel in this world. It's real and it's true, right? You see it, okay? But we are in the midst of a mass apostasy. And there's no denying that either. It's increasingly unsafe to be a Christian. If you worship the true God and your mind is renewed and transformed and conformed to Scripture, if you've stepped outside of the matrix, guess what happens? The thought police are going to come for you. Which is why so many churches and denominations and so-called Christians have tried to conform their Christianity to the world. It's evil and it's demonic, but it's because they don't want to suffer. It's because they don't want the pain of being living sacrifices. Well, here's the truth, though. We can point fingers at the compromisers and call them out, but it's just as hard and difficult and painful for each of us to make our own lives into living sacrifices. I've said it already, I'll say it again, and I am concerned that some of you here, the sacrifice you want to make is the sacrifice of being intellectually right while maintaining being morally wrong. I'm afraid that some of you here at this church, the sacrifice you want to make is the sacrifice of being intellectually right and morally wrong. that you just want to be right in your thinking of God and Scripture and in your judgments of the world. And you want that to be enough for you. And you don't actually want to live a transformed life where you deal with your sin and you repent of it and you walk in newness of life. You just want to be a special kind of hypocrite who's able to sit in judgment on everyone else for not having the kind of faith, or sorry, for not being able to see things as clearly as you while not having the faith or the guts to deal with your own sin and hardness of heart. 
And if that is you, you are the one who should be afraid. So are you being conformed to this world or transformed by the renewal of your mind? In Romans 7 and 8, Paul calls this living according to the flesh versus living according to the spirit. In fact, he says we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit. That's the dying part of the sacrifice. And he says we need to walk in newness of life. That's the living part of being the living sacrifice. And then he says this, that when we put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk in newness of life, when we refuse to be conformed any longer to this world and its lusts and its evil desires, and instead insist on being transformed by the renewal of our minds, we have the ability to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We'll know. We'll begin to see things clearly. Our vision won't be as distorted. The world loves to take what's ugly and what's evil and put a bow on it and sell it to you as something beautiful. But if our minds are renewed, we begin to see ugly as ugly. We begin to see it as repulsive as it truly is. We begin to see good as good and evil as evil, dangerous as dangerous, deadly as deadly. We begin to see past the ribbons and the bows and the thin veneer, the mask on the monster, the makeup on the pig. And we learn to run and flee what is evil and cling to what is good. So where's that driving? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, so we die to ourselves, we live to God, and here's why. So that we can be humble and honest about who we really are, about who God made us to be. Each of us tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Every one of us. Jake, if you knew how much I was filled with self-hatred and self-loathing, you wouldn't say that. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Yes, I would say that. You want to know why? Because the reason you hate yourself is because you think you ought to be better than you act, and you cannot be content with your own weaknesses, and you are judging God for making you the way you are, and you're judging other people for not seeing past your mistakes and your failures to your true worth, which you alone see. And you hate everybody else more than you hate yourself. And you think your special gift is your ability to see how much you suck, and if everybody else had your special gift, they would hate themselves more than you hate yourself. It's all pride. It's all pride. Everyone thinks of themselves more highly than they ought. That's the tendency. We don't want to reckon with the sinfulness of our own hearts because we don't want to do the work of dying. We're scared of the work of living. When we evaluate ourselves, Paul says we tend to have drunk glasses on. We need to have sober judgment. We tend to be a little tipsy when we look at ourselves in the mirror. That means we often need the help of other people who have a clear and sober judgment of us. And that's part of the beauty of being a part of a body of believers where we love each other and can trust each other. Where we're committed to one another and where we actually work to help each other. Is there sin? Yeah. Is there pride? Yeah. Is there rivalry? Yeah. But we are here because we want to grow. We want to help each other grow. So you're called to be a living sacrifice not being conformed to this world, transformed by the renewing of your mind, learning the will of God, and that makes you free to be honest and real and sober 
and submissive to the gifts and strengths and the weaknesses and limitations that God has given you. Because you want to actually serve others. You want to love the body. And that starts with knowing your place and learning your place because we're not all the same. And so since this morning, I keep telling you what I'm concerned about, I'm going to tell you another thing I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that some of you think more highly than you ought to think of yourselves, and that means that you aspire to things that will hurt you and will hurt those you love and will hurt those you attempt to serve. I'm concerned that some of you think more highly of yourselves than you ought, so you aspire to things that will hurt you and those you love and those you attempt to serve. Not because the things you aspire to are bad, but because you don't have a sober view of yourself. When we're proud and do not have a sober view of ourselves, we can aspire to good things in a way that's bad, in a way that's ultimately harmful to us and those we love and those we think we're there to help and serve. But the love of God frees us to be humble and to be content with what God made us to be. And there's good news there. Because God exalts the humble, but he opposes the proud. If you don't aspire to serve at all, just to consume, which I'm also concerned about, then you're committed to just remaining unhealthy and weak. You should aspire to serve. You should want to serve. You should give your heart to serving with the gifts God has given you. We need a church of people on mission who are dying and coming alive who are being crucified and resurrected, who are being activated to use their gifts to build up this body and to gain ground for God's kingdom in this community. So aspire to serve. Don't aspire to come and consume. The gospel and the kingdom of God and the church, not some kind of therapy that help you cope with your pain while remaining unchanged. Gospel is transformative. From the inside out. It takes broken, hurting, weak people and turns them into servants of God and servants of others who then go out and transform the world they live in. So aspire to serve, but with humility and sober judgment, with honesty, with the gifts that God has given you and not with the gifts he hasn't. With the ability to listen as others tell you that your judgment is a little bit tipsy. You're not quite right. You aspire to good things. That's not who you are. That's not what we see, at least not now or at least not yet. And then be open-handed about it. Why? Because we're ultimately all on the same team. We are on team Jesus, and he is the owner and the boss and the coach and the team captain, and he is the one who actually gets to decide. And guess what? We win in the end. So let him decide how you fit and what your part is, what your role is, and learn your role. Let me use, um, I'm going to use my son Ian as an example here. Ian loves basketball. He has a lot of fun with it. Ian, are you the best ball player on your team? No. He knows that. That being said, Ian usually gets quality minutes on his team. And his coaches love him. And he's a valuable contributor to any team he plays for pretty much every time he steps on the court. Why? Well, he may not be the best shooter or the best ball handler, but Ian always knows his role. Well, most of the time he knows his role. Yesterday was a little debatable. But he knows his role. He learns the plays. He knows where he's supposed to be. He has a sober judgment of his strengths and weaknesses. He still works on them, on his strengths and weaknesses. He has a sober judgment of them, though. And he hustles and he works hard and he listens to his coaches. He has a good attitude. He's content to know his place and to do his part. 
And those things elevate a team. That makes a good teammate. And there are always kids on teams that are like that. If you've played sports, you know. And what will happen is as you age up and get to high school or college, those kids will be the kids who keep playing often. And many other kids who are more talented or athletic or better overall ball players will lose their spots. Why? Because they have to be the point guard and they won't accept their role. They have to handle the ball. They have to, and they won't uh, learn to play off ball. They refuse to accept that what they actually bring to the team is defense, or that they're not really a shooter. Because they can't accept the role, what else happens? They bring an attitude to the team that is toxic to the team culture. They bring pride and bitterness and resentment and a sense of entitlement that has no place and is counterproductive. And so the coach says, what? Dude, you gotta go. Accept your role or leave. We don't need your talent if it comes with your attitude. Because they refuse to think soberly of themselves and put their head down and go to work and learn their role. There's another kid on Ian's team. I was watching him yesterday. He's almost impossible to guard. He's one of the biggest kids out there, but he's fast and he handles the ball as well or better than anybody and he can shoot it from anywhere on the court. And he has trouble knowing his role. But it's the opposite. He's committed to being a good teammate and an unselfish player, and so he's always thinking pass first. He's passing up open shots, giving other people looks. What does he have to learn? Sometimes being a good teammate is carrying the weight. Sometimes being a good teammate is carrying the load of scoring and not putting it on your teammates. You have to know your role and how you fit. It's true in the church. And the thing is, our pride and our egos get so in the way of the work of God, we don't even begin to understand how God values our gifts or our place on the team. We just know what we value, which is being first or being recognized or being esteemed as valuable or being seen as humble. Often in football, everybody wants to be either the quarterback or definitely not the quarterback. They want to be front and center or they're scared to death of the leadership and responsibility that comes with it. In basketball, you want to be the point guard, you want to be front and center, or you want to be, you're scared to death of the leadership and responsibility that comes with it. It's all sports analogies. In Dungeons and Dragons, (laughs) you want to be the guy who tells the story or the guy who doesn't tell the story. I have no idea. <laughs> At church, everyone wants to be an elder, or a preacher, or a pastor, because that's who we think and see has the most value. Or we're scared to death of the responsibility that comes with that kind of leadership. But that doesn't mean any of that is how God actually sees it. We just each have our part to play. We have to be humble about that and trust it takes the whole team. It takes the whole body. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 
If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We are one body with many members and we all need each other. We don't all have the same purpose. If we did, it'd be weird, it'd be monstrous. We're not all hands, we're not all feet, we're not all eyes. But if any one of us is missing or suffering, we all feel the pain. How many of you have had a physical problem in one part of your body and just took out the rest of your body? You felt it everywhere. It's called being old. So here's a list of gifts in this passage, okay? It's not exhaustive. I don't think it's exclusive either, okay? There are other lists in the New Testament of gifts. There are like three other lists, I think. You don't necessarily need to find yourself on this list in any one gift or isolate yourself to only one of these gifts. What I think is most important is that we understand ourselves and who we are and what our gifts are. So whatever your gifts are, you use them as God intended according to the measure of your faith and the grace that God has given you. That's the point, okay? But let's run through the list and then we'll close. Prophecy. Prophets in Scripture are people with courage and discernment who see and apply God's law to the people. That's what they do. They see broad things happening in the culture. They call it out. They see where things are headed. And it's not necessarily tied to an ability to, to read the future or predict the future. But if you talk to someone who, who has something of a prophetic gift, they see things coming before they happen. They see where things are going. And if that's you, have courage. Be prophetic in proportion to your faith. Don't overextend yourself and don't keep your mouth shut. Service. This is somebody who just loves to serve. Some of you think your wives have the gift of service and you have the gift of being served. You need to repent of that. Some of you just love to serve and work and be useful. Go at it. Make yourself useful. We need you. Teaching, that's somebody who's really good at opening up and explaining things and connecting dots, helping people understand the big picture, helping the light bulbs go off. Exhortation or encouragement. Somebody who has the ability to inspire you, to build you up and give you strength and courage and faith to do what you know you already need to do. When you talk to somebody who has the gift of exhortation or encouragement, you feel like they've blown wind into your sails, that you actually have the strength you need to go do what you already knew you needed to do. Know anybody like that? The one who contributes. Some of you have means and the ability to give. And Paul says, go for it. Be generous. Not everyone has that ability. Not everyone has that gift. No one has a naturally generous heart. But if God has entrusted you with wealth, God means that he, or God trusts you to use that wealth generously to build his kingdom. Some of you have that. And you love to give and you love to use that. It's something you know you can do that God blesses. And you know that it's more blessed to give than to receive. The world uses people to make money. We use money to love people. The one who leads, leaders lead. They set the tone, they lead the charge. They're the people you follow into battle. They're the ones who take it on the chin. They need zeal and strength and courage. The one who does acts of mercy, People who love to bend to others in their time of need, in their moment of weakness or pain. 
If that's you, you need to give yourself to that work cheerfully. So what we're talking about here is worship. You've been worshiping by listening. We're about to be worshiping by singing and praying. And then you're going to leave. And the challenge is going to be to continue worshiping by living, by dying to yourself and living to Jesus. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Know God, know yourself, love God, love others as you love yourself. Use the gifts and graces God has given you to build up the body. And as you do, know this, you will be resisted. Your sinful flesh will resist you. The world will resist you. But Jesus is for you. Jesus has already triumphed over your sin on the cross. He's coming back to triumph over it finally. And the same power that raised him from the dead is at work in you. And he absolutely means to triumph over your sin in your life this week if you are willing to die and give yourself to the work. So give yourself to him and trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would humble our hearts before you and teach us how we must each die to ourselves this week so that we may live to you and live for one another. Humble our hearts. Give us a sober judgment of ourselves. Help us give ourselves to serving you and to serving one another. In Jesus' name, amen.